on mission. That's quite a broad statement, and it? it's, it's, it's a loaded statement. So what, what are we talking about on mission? Some of us, we think of on mission, we may think of military. And we praise God for, for those who have served in the military uh, and have given, and given their time and their service and maybe even their life for us. Uh, some of us may think of space, right? We have different missions. We have mission control. We have different space voyages and missions that we've done. However, today's message is going to be on a different type of being on mission. Uh, it's about being on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that as we learn more about what it means to be on mission for the gospel, that we're encouraged to stay focused on the mission that God has for each one of us. Let us pray. Lord God, as we, as we start reading your word here, as we finish the book of Colossians, and first off, we praise you and thank you for, for the truth that you've poured out upon us in this wonderful book as we be able to enjoy uh, what you have to say, Lord, what your word has to say about many, many different things through this book. God, as we finish, I pray that we finish well in this book, that we, that we realize what it's like to be on mission, that we take our mission seriously. Um, and so, God, I just pray that you help our, our, our hearts be open to your word, our minds be open to your word. Anything that we have that's hindering us from listening, any stresses, anything we're worried about later today or this past week, that we're able to just to toss them off and be able to listen and receive uh, your word, Lord. Uh, may, may it be your words that come through my mouth and not my own. Uh, may, I become, may this become less of me and more of you, Lord, for you are to be glorified and you are to be praised for now and forever. Amen. So I'm sure mo most of you kind of felt a little bit off balance if you were here last week and you've been studying through Colossians and, and, and I kind of did a pivot statement into Philemon for a week and kind of brought that in. And hopefully this week you'll see why we kind of did that um, somewhat. It, you're going to see Onesimus and you're going to see some overlap. And then you're going to see that we're going to be uh, commissioning a couple of missionaries. So uh, it kind of made sense to move this here. This is a really interesting scripture. And sadly, a lot of pastors really skip these ending greetings and, and kind of uh, fellowship times where, where there's all these kind of things. They'll be like, oh, well, that's not really important, so they skip over it. And, and it's sad because there's, there's some good information to glean in all of Scripture, and this is one that has a lot more uh, to glean from than we would think. And if we look, the book of Colossians is actually in four chapters, and it's 95 verses, but Paul spends 12 of his 95 verses in this section of final greetings. I mean, it's just incredible how much space that he put there. As I've entitled our message already on mission, as we've talked about, we're going to see a group of believers who were on mission in the early church. And, and I pray that as we study these verses that we are encouraged to, and, and admonished to continue on our mission. So we're going to discuss three ways that we are to be on mission. And the first is, when on mission, you should deliver the message. When on mission, you should deliver the message. I'm going to read. It'll be up here as well. Lord willing that the technology works. All right, here we go. So Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell of everything that has taken place here. So we're introduced to two letter carriers here. And we see Onesimus and, Ty and Tychicus, and we're going to talk a little bit about both of them. But last week, we spent some time talking about Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon, and we went through that book of Philemon, which was a letter that Paul had sent to Philemon uh, to, to forgive Onesimus for running away and probably selling some of his money when he did that. And, and, and we, see, we see Paul's love 
before Onesimus. So Onesimus had been born again through Paul's ministry. We also see that Philemon had been born again through uh, Paul's ministry. And so it's really neat to see God working in both of these men's lives through the ministry of Paul and saving both of their souls. And he encouraged the forgiveness of Onesimus because Onesimus was useful to the church as well. And he wanted to see them forgive one another because love covers a multitude of sins, right? And so we want to see reconciliation among the body. We want to see them working together in the church of Colossae. And so Paul writes that letter. And, the, and these two letter carriers carry both of those letters at the same time, which is interesting how they're both dropped off there at the same time. So as an old man, we actually see Paul even refer to Onesimus as his very heart. He loves this guy so much. We see how much he trusts him as well by letting him carry the word of God here, as we see. Then, but then who is Tychicus? We haven't really talked about him in this book. So this guy comes out of nowhere, and his name means fortunate. And Tychicus was fortunate because he was able to hear the words of eternal life from Paul. Uh, how fortunate can you be than to hear the words of eternal life? All of us who are here are fortunate to hear the gospel that Jesus Christ saves. That, that, and we'll go into more of that, of what the gospel is, but that, that we're to turn from our sins. We have to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ for salvation. And this Tychicus was actually a very trusted man. So he was, he was actually so trusted that we see in Titus 3.12 that he was going to be sent to replace Titus. He was one of, the, one of the people they could have chosen as a temporary replacement for Titus as Titus was gone as the senior pastor of that church. And we see that again uh, in 2 Timothy. We see that the Tychicus was chosen to replace Timothy while Timothy left to minister to Paul in 2 Timothy 4.12. So we see this guy was a very trusted guy. He was a guy that Paul could send to take over a church for a while and, and run things the right way. I mean, that's a very trusted person. And as we think about this, and most people actually think that Tychicus not only carried this, the, these two letters that we talked about, Philemon and Colossians, but the Tychicus actually covered, uh, carried the letter to the Ephesians, as we see here. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So he's, he's bringing that letter. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are. It's very similar wording that we see in the book of Colossians. So I mention all these things because these two men were entrusted to carry the word of God, the very words of God, to these churches. I mean, how, in, how incredible is that, that weight that these two men were given? They, they were literally given what would become and what was already the word of God, the inerrant word of God. And as we think about that, as we think about how they delivered the message that they were sent to deliver, how they were given this message and they delivered it where it was supposed to go, my friends, are, are we trustworthy enough to deliver the message that we've been given? My friends, we have been given a message. And despite, you might be like, well, you know, Paul didn't hand me a letter to take. You know what? We have the whole message. We have the canonized Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, the Scripture, the Gospel that's, that has the power to save souls, are we trustworthy enough to deliver the message that we've been given? And what is this message you may object? Well, I mean, what, what, what are you talking about? It's the Gospel, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that salvation is available to all, Gentile or Jew, slave or free, no matter what your skin color is, no matter where you're from, no matter what your upbringing is, salvation is is to all. And God gives it to all without reproach. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came, God made flesh, 100% God, 100% man, lived a sinless life, was crucified on our behalf, took the nails that we deserved, took the punishment that we deserved, and died for our sins. 
But three days later, this is the good news. That sounds like bad news, right? It's like we're sinners. Jesus died. Bad news. Not great news. But good news is three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead, and he is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, who are his children. So when we sin, when we fall, we have a Father to go to through Jesus Christ who intercedes for us. As the enemy points at you and says, guilty, guilty, he's right, you are. But Jesus has declared you not guilty because his righteousness has been, big word, imputed upon you. Your filthy rags have been placed upon him. His perfect righteousness is placed upon you. And when God looks, God the Father looks down at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, and we are joint heirs with him. That is the message that we have, church. Are we delivering on that message? Are we giving that message to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, those around us? Frankly, even those in our church who may not have that message completely understood. And, and, and the big, big thing that I'm going to end with is, do you have that message? Do you, do, you, do you truly know Christ as your personal Savior? Not do you know about Christ. A lot of people know about Christ, and there's, there's, there's actually biblical scholars who are unsaved unbelievers who know a lot about Christ, maybe more than you do, but they don't know Christ. Do you know Christ? Have you been given that message to deliver? And we have to, to test our hearts and say, have I been given that message? Because I can't deliver what I don't have. If I haven't received the message, how am I supposed to deliver it to someone else? I'm going to ask a couple of tough questions here. Do you th- not think that the message that you've been given, the gospel, is, is a message worth delivering? Like, why, why do we not deliver it? it, is, it is the message not life-changing enough for you? Do you not really see it be effective in the lives of unbelievers? Is, is it not really that big of a message? It's really not that important? Or as most believers in our nation, and our comfort of America, we probably fall into this one. Do you value how people like you more than you value their eternal soul? We need to repent, brothers and sisters. We all need to repent. Me included, we all need to repent for missing opportunities because of our selfishness, what we're focused on. You know, whatever it is, we need to repent by loving God first, others second. We need to repent for loving ourselves more than God and our fellow neighbors. And we need to, we need to deliver the message. Deliver it like people's lives depend on it because, frankly, they do. No one has believed who has never heard. We see in Romans 10, 14, and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? We must be delivering this message personally, my friends. It's, it's not just enough to send somebody else or to support a pastor who preaches the word. That's not enough. You, each one of you, has to deliver the message too. We're all given that message. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission, is not pastors need to go do this. Missionaries need to go do this. You know, and we're going to, praise the Lord, we are going to do what we see verse 15 here. We're going to commission a couple who's preparing to deliver the message of the gospel to possibly a hostile territory, a, a place where the gospel has not reached an unreached people group. Cody and Savannah here, we're going to commission them at the end of the service and pray over them. And so we're following through with sending others, and we have you know, other, other missionaries that, 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 we, that we've sent. But we needed to send ourselves too. We have been sent. 
into our, into our neighborhood. I love that video, and that's why I wanted to show that, because it looked like it was abroad. It looked like this was an international mission. Uh, you know, we, we, all these people have went out here. This is great. But we see that it was on probably a college campus, or at least in the city. It was at a place where people were working and, and playing and, and having a good time. But you see this guy, and he shares the gospel there, that he prays with that guy there. Is that us? I pray it is. I pray that we repent. I pray that we do do it here in a place where, where we can share the gospel. Most of the time, without at least direct persecution of our life, we may get left out of a Christmas party. We may get left out of something, which is an interesting thing. You don't get invited to a Christmas party because you're a Christian. But that does happen sometimes in some places in America. Um, but we have the greatest, the greatest message in the world to deliver in the history of the universe, the gospel. So we need to be faithful to deliver the message to the masses. And number, the second point here is, when on mission, you should be devoted to the work. When on mission, you should be devoted to the work. I'm going to read 10 through 14. It's a little small, so I apologize. Um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf and his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in, the, in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and so does Demas. So next we're going to come to a group of believers that are mentioned. And these are people that, that Paul sends greetings on their behalf. So these are, these are men who have been serving alongside him. Sorry, getting a little partial. Um, and, and, and we start off with a man named Aristarchus. And Aristarchus is a trusted minister of the faith. If we see here, this, this guy was actually a man of, from, Th- from Thessalonica. Uh, and he was of Jewish descent, despite his Greek name. We see him as one of the three actual Jews that were serving alongside him. If we look at Acts 20, 20 verse 4, we see that he was actually charged to take up the collection and take it to the church. And ha- that was, there was a lot of trust. He was trusted with the money. You can always know whether somebody's trusted, whether they, they, they're trusted with the money. You, you, you know where, whether people trust you or not if they trust you with something like that. And, that, and this guy was that guy. And he was also very dedicated because this was a guy who was actually even suffering by being beaten with Paul, as we see in Acts 19.29, that he was a fellow prisoner with Paul as well. Next we come to, to John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. John MacArthur calls this guy the man with a second chance. And John Mark is actually who wrote the gospel of Mark. And a lot of people have a hard time putting those two together, but he's widely been known as a deserter, and that's because if we look in Acts chapter 13, we see this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And, and we see, well, you read that, and you're like, oh, he, okay, he left. Well, we see, if we keep moving forward, that this was a big deal, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So that was his first missionary journey, Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. Well, now they're about to go on a second missionary journey, now we got a problem. And we see Paul and Barnabas doing a little bit of this. And it says, And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. We'll see Paul took Silas with him. And so, so we see Paul's like, Hey, man, he bailed on us last time we were out there. I'm not taking him again. You know, we, went, we, got, we didn't make it. We were going into Asia, and he, he bounced. And so this guy's not dependable. 
Uh, and so we see that this, that this led to the splitting of these two godly men, Barnabas, who had actually helped mentor Paul. Uh, people were scared to death of Paul because Paul had killed multiple Christians and, and had thrown them in prison. And here comes Paul being converted on the road to Damascus, and everybody's like, dude, I don't want anything to do with that guy. And Barnabas takes him under his wing and mentors him. And so these men were close. Barnabas is actually named, he's, he means encouragement. Like this was an encouraging guy, and that's what he was known as. And yet still, this was an issue. But what, what I love is God was not done with John Mark. God was not done with this man. And it's likely that Peter actually spent a lot of time with him because we see at the end of Peter's first letter, he says this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. If we look at, remember what, what Paul called Onesimus? His spiritual son? His, it was like his son, uh, close. And, and you don't call somebody your son unless you're really close, unless there's the, you know, a relationship there, right? You don't just say, oh, this is my son, and I've never met that guy before, right? There, there's a, an intimate relationship. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of relationality there. And we see Peter called John Mark, his son. And who better to restore John Mark than Peter? If you remember Peter, what did he do? Three times he denied the Lord. When Jesus needed him the most, Peter's like, I don't know that dude. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know him. You know, don't, don't talk to me. I, I'm not. You know, three different times in the rooster crows. And yet he was restored by Jesus Christ, right? And so now we see John Mark in that same situation. He's bailed. Uh, you know, whenever Paul, needed, Paul and Barnabas needed the most, they were going into Asia. They were spreading the gospel. First missionary journey. These are church, b- churches being planted. They need help. You know, we planted a church here. It takes work. It takes people working in order to do that. It ta- you know, people had to carry things and set up things. And, and when you have that one person that just bails when you really need it the most, and then they come by when it's easy. So, yeah, this is, that's hard. It, it becomes tough, you know, relationally. There, there's a fracture in that trust. And, but Peter knew what it was like to break trust. And he also knew what it was like to be restore, restored by Jesus Christ. And so he takes him under his wing. And not only is he restored, but he writes one of the four Gospels. And we have four Gospels of Jesus Christ, and Mark writes one of them. And I think this is great because God is a God who specializes in in second chances. We may have missed a lot of chances over our life. We may be like, I should have shared there. I should have done this. I bailed on that because it got hard. And we may look back at our life, and we may see moments in time where we blew it, where we didn't do what we were supposed to do. But God is a God of second chances, frankly, third and fourth chances. We see tons of chances that people are given. And so if we repent, we turn from our sin and we say, okay, God, let's, let's do this. He will restore you, and he will, he will open up doors for you to share that gospel, and he will help you to stay devoted to the work. We need to move forward like Mark and Peter did. They didn't keep just looking back. Oh, you know, Mar- Mark, as he's writing the gospel, doesn't say, well, I'd, I'm not worthy to do this. Because Here's the answer to all of us. We're all unworthy, whether you've blown it or not, because we've all blown it in some way. We may not have blown it as big as that was, where it's in the Bible, <laughs> and we turned, and we ran away, and we may not be, you know, but we've all messed up. We've all messed up. And so we can take so much, so much uh, grace here and, and, and mercy and peace from seeing Jesus restore Peter, and then Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, restoring John Mark to the point where he writes a gospel. Then we see justice, and, and, and justice is a comforter of Paul. We're not given a whole lot of information about this guy, but we see that him and the other two Jews are a comfort to him, and they're a comfort to him because Paul grew up Jewish, and he says these are the only three guys that are serving alongside him that are, that are Jewish, that, that, that are still following, coming with him and serving, that are willing to be persecuted for the gospel, and he's comforted 
by that. We all need people in our church fellowship, people in our lives that are comforters for us, encouragers and comforters for us. Because here's, here's the thing, Paul's in prison. And being in prison is not real fun. I can't imagine it being a really joyous experience for him. And there's times where I'm sure he gets down. I'm sure there's times where he needs encouragement, he needs comfort. God still got you. He's still there with you. Keep, keep fighting in the faith. Keep working. Keep writing. Keep encouraging the churches. And, and he's comforted by that. Next, we come to Epaphras, and he's the church planter in Colossae, the church planter in Colossae. So we spent a decent bit of time at the, the beginning of the book of Colossians talking about this guy. And we, and we talked about how that Paul probably had never actually been to this church, but, uh, but, but he had, Epaphras had been converted under Paul's ministry and went and planted this church in Colossae. He was most likely converted in Ephesus when Paul was ministering there. But we see that actually this man was willing to be imprisoned with Paul. We see that in Philemon 23. So uh, he, he had also been willing to step up and, and, and suffer persecution for Christ. And this man is a great example of a shepherd, of a pastor. And we see his heart for the people there. And if we look at Colossians 4.12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This man struggles for his church in prayer. And a lot of times you think prayer is a cop-out, right? It's like, well, you need to do the real work. Get out there, do this, put, you know, pull your bootstraps up, let's, let's get to work. Prayer is the best work we can do. And as a pastor, as a leader, we need to be praying for our people. As a congregation, we need to be praying for our pastors and our leaders and our, church, and our government leaders, everybody. We need to be praying, praying hard for one another as well. Because prayer is where the real battles, the real battles are fought in prayer. Because God is who moves. God is who changes hearts. Even of pagan men and women, you see God change hearts. He is the one who can do it. Next we come to Luke, the physician who was faithful and consistent to Paul and Christ. Faithful and consistent to Paul and Christ. So Luke obviously has a special place in my heart. And I'll, for some of you, you'll, you'll get that. Uh, for others, maybe not, but I'm, I'm a physician as well. So, so I ha have a special place. He has a special place in my heart, and I love his thoroughness. So this guy only writes two books. He writes Luke and Acts. And I mean, but he writes a third of the New Testament. This guy is very big about writing. He, he likes words, and he's very thorough. Uh, so if you, you, you look at Luke, and you want your doctor to be thorough, right? I mean, you don't want a doctor that's just going to have to do something. Well, you know, I think I probably left part of your appendix. You know, like that's not what you want to hear from your surgeon. I got, the, I got the last third. Don't worry about it. You know, so, so this guy is thorough, and he writes all the details. And if you read Luke and Acts, I really want to preach through one of them, but it's going to take us a few years. I'll just be honest. It's going to take a while. So once we go, once we get started, we're going to put our head down and get moving. Uh, but, but little is actually known about Luke's background in the Bible. We only see him actually mentioned in three, three times in Paul's letters. Here, Philemon, verse 24, and then we see in 2 Timothy 4.11. But in 2 Timothy 4.11, 2 Timothy's Paul's last letter historically, toward the end of his life, probably right before he gets beheaded uh, in, in Rome during, after his third imprisonment. We see Luke there, and, and this, is what, this is what it said. Luke alone is with me. 
And I love, this guy's got staying power. This guy's been, he writes the book of Acts. So obviously we see him, and he uses the word us a lot. So we see that he's with Paul when a lot of these things are happening. So I can't imagine he's getting completely left out of some of these beatings, completely left out of some of these shipwrecks. He's there. So he's experiencing all these things. But this guy is faithful and consistent and over and over and over again. Uh, th- You've you got to think that Paul's a pretty smart guy, too, keeping a physician nearby because he got beat up a lot. I mean, you know, have you ever been around somebody that just has bad luck? Like this guy, he's beat up like everywhere he goes. So luckily he had a physician to try to bandage him up uh, over and over again. But according to extra-biblical sources, Luke accompanied Paul until he was beheaded, that he was there until the end of Paul's life, and he continued to be faithful and consistent until his death, which is in stark contrast of the other guy who is mentioned here, Demas, the deserter. It's really interesting. So it may be looking a little too far into this, but if we look at Demas and we look at all of the other people that are listed in this section of Scripture, there is something nice said about every one of them. Luke is the beloved physician. You know, we, we, we see something nice, something kind said about each one of them, except for Demas. His name is just kind of thrown out there. Maybe it's looking too far, but are there some chinks in his armor? Are there some kind of questions that Paul has? Huh, this guy's maybe not what I think he is. So he just kind of mentions his name, but doesn't really say anything, doesn't really pass anything on there. And again, in what is likely Paul's last letter, this is what he writes about Demas right before the last verse that we just saw. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Wow. So, you know, we, we saw John Mark desert probably because of fear. Um, but, but this is a different desert. And Peter, obviously, deserts because of fear. But this is different. It doesn't say Demas was scared. Demas actually had been a part of this ministry and saw a lot of bad stuff. And he did desert at that point. But he deserts here because it says he's in love with this present world. And this is a quite a condemning statement because this is what we see in the word. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. My friends, we must love Christ more than anything else, anything in this world, that ha- anything that this world has to offer. Frankly, even our friends, our family, our job, our home, our comfort, our possessions, Christ must take first place. And Demas, he failed the love test. He failed the love test. Demas loved the world more than he loved Christ. And Christ gave us another love test as well in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Demas was not willing to love Christ by being obedient to Christ. True believers obey the word of God They obey the word of God and follow him without compromising. True believers obey the word of God and follow him without compromising. And when they do mess up, because we will, we will mess up. They repent, and they're quick to repent. Brothers and sisters, when on mission, we should be devoted to the work, deliver the message. And finally, when on mission, you should discern the audience. You should discern the audience. Let me read verses 15 through 18. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. 
So after mentioning his two messengers and then mentioning other people that are fellow ministers of the gospel with him, he moves on to talk about the future readers of this letter, the people that would receive this letter. Obviously, Paul addressed the Colossian church throughout this letter, and so now we see him mention the, the, the Laodicean church. As we mentioned, the first, if we show, remember that the, the, we had a, a map that showed how close Laodicea was. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossians were, were very close cities together. And Colossia, or the Colossian church was actually, that city was the smallest of those, those three. But here we see, the, and, and if, if everybody thinks of Laodicea, they think of Revelation 3. And it's not a really great thing to say about the church of Laodicea. But when it first started, it was actually an energetic and vibrant church and may that be conviction to us that they became the lukewarm church that jesus says i'm going to remove your lampstand may we not become that lukewarm church church let's not let's not do that so even though we might stay start energetically and 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 let's let's keep that up let's keep moving forward and we start by seeing this woman named nympha uh, and if we look at nympha she housed the church she housed the church so she's most likely an affluent laodicean who has hospitably opened up her home for a church plant in the Laodicean area. She sounds a lot like Lydia, who we saw the the seller of purple linen that we saw in Acts chapter 16, as we we went through Philippians, probably a year year ago now, um, who was also one of the chief financial supporters of that church. And then we saw last week Philemon, who housed a church in his home. And it's amazing how God uses different people of different socioeconomics. You know, we, we have a slave, Onesimus, who's used, and then we have an affluent person like Nympha who is used. So God is no respecter of your checkbook, of your background. He uses those who are willing to be used. Sometimes he uses those like Paul who weren't willing until he blinded them on the road to Damascus because he is a sovereign God. Um, but we look at, so we, we move forward and we look into, into verse 16 here. It says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the church or the letter from Laodicea. And this is a really good eye-opening uh, view of how the early Bible, how the canon was developed. And a, there's a lot of misnomers, a lot of misconceptions of how the Bible was put together and when it was, you know, when it was recognized, when certain books were. And most people will quote, oh, it was the Council of Nicaea in 325. That's when Constantine brought all these people and put it together. And what it sounds like is almost 300 years after something, some of the stuff happened, 250 years after the stuff happened, the thing was put together at that point. But, my friends, that's actually, that's actually a lie. That is not the truth. So if we look, the letters like this were, were recognized as the Word of God, even from this, this early place. And we see God sovereignly working, choosing which letters would become a part of the canon, which letters would disappear, would go away, and which letters would persevere and be copied and, and, and passed around. God chose which letters that would be there. Because here's the thing. A lot of people will see this, this letter to Laodicea, and it'll shake their faith a little bit. Like, do we have the full Bible? What about this letter to Laodicea? What happened to it? Where is it at? But we know is that Paul is a man, and he's not inerrant. That he says things that maybe, maybe, maybe are off sometimes, just like I'm not inerrant. And, and none of us are, are inerrant except for God. And so God, in his sovereignty, takes the letters that are truly the word of God and preserves them through his sovereign hand, uh, that, that the church is able to pick which letters w- will stay. And if we look, we actually see that, that well, uh, w- let's look at this first. So Second Peter one twenty one, we see that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see some letters, maybe it may have been Paul's letters, some letters were God's letters through Paul. So not everything Paul wrote, he wasn't like the Pope where he speaks everything and everything's inerrant, which is 
not true. Uh, it, there is no man who speaks everything that is always truth other than Jesus Christ. Uh, so so, so that, that is not truth, just to kind of knock that down. But Paul, Paul was a man. But what we see is when the Spirit carried him along, when he wrote as the Holy Spirit wrote through him, it was 100% true. As we see Peter even talk about Paul's letters as Scripture and calls them Scripture. And this shouldn't decrease our faith. It should increase it. We see God's sovereign hand already working. And as early as A.D. 95, we see Clement of Rome already starting to put together an early canon. And by 170 A.D., we, we see the Muratorian canon, which is the entire New Testament, other than five books at that point, that were just recognized across the board. We're, we're looking at just ge- few, like generations there. We can trust the Scripture is accurate because it has been protected and sustained by God himself, his sovereign hand, has handpicked the 27 books that we have and has thrown out the other ones, and we can know that it is the inerrant word of God. It's not the game of telephone. These are the original letters, and and they've been copied, and they've been passed down, and they were copied, and they were recognized within a generation of Jesus dying. I mean, how incredible is that? There's no other history in the history of the world that we have that close to the source. It is the word of God. So moving forward, we, we see verse, verse 17 here. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And Archippus is a church leader or a missionary. Um, we don't know exactly what um, Archippus did. We, we think he could have been church leader in the church of Colossae. He could have been actually sent out by that church. And we, we see in Philemon 2, he's called our fellow soldier. He's likely the son of Philemon. Uh, if, we, if we're looking there, Aphia is his mother. Philemon and Aphia have Archippus, most likely. And we see Philemon raise him as a soldier in the faith. And then moving on, just right here, we saw that he has been given a ministry to fulfill. And Paul says, hey, fulfill that ministry. How, how amazing is that? And then finally, we come toward the end here. Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. We see Paul's give a, give a benediction of grace, as he often does at the end of his books, end of his letters. And then he, he requests prayer because he's in chains, right? He's, he's in prison. And some of you might look at this final point that we talked about, discern your audience, be like, well, where is he going with that? Where, where did this come from? Did you just use that, that word because it's a D word? And, and we were looking for, for uh, you know, alliteration, continue the Baptist way of doing sermons that they all have the same letter when you, when you go there. But I, I use it because... When we look at ministry, when we look at mission, we have to discern our audience. And, and there's two, two aspects of that. Number one, you have to know your team. You have to know who you're going out with. So we need to know the fellowship. We all have strengths. We have weaknesses. We have things that we do well, things that we don't do well. We have blind spots, all those kind of things. And in order to do ministry well, we have to know our team really well. We have to discern our team. And secondly, we have to know who we're going out to. You know, we're in Taze Valley, Hurricane area here in West Virginia. And people here are different than maybe people in Saudi Arabia. And they're going to be different than people in Africa. And as our missionary couple here thinks about things, where they end up is going to have people that are much different than here. And so we have to discern our audience. We have to know what their pre-understandings are. We have to know where they come from. What are their religious beliefs? Where, you know, where are they coming from? Here, a lot of secular humanism, a lot of evolution, a lot of old earth, a lot of things, hey, the Bible's just just a suggestion. It's got errors, the telephone game. There's a lot of misunderstandings uh, of, of what it is and, and how true it is. Jesus, I, he's just a good guy. He maybe didn't even exist, some people will say. So we have to know, even in our culture here that's kind of more, you know, Christianese-based, they're still going to have 
a lot of a lot of pre-understandings that are wrong, things that they were taught that were incorrect. That oh, there's actually other ways to God. You don't just have to be a Christian. A lot of postmodernism. That's true for you, not true for me. But that's okay for you. Can be right for you, but it's not right for me. A lot of that kind of stuff. Whereas other countries, you may have a different thing. And so that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intentionality to discern your audience, to know who you're going to, who you're going to go share the gospel with. You have to know them. You have to love them despite their sin. You have to push through those things. And that takes a lot of work. But that work does pay off, my friends. When we do, we put in that work to know our team well, to train our team well, and to know what, what, what we're doing well, and then to go out and share the gospel. Only then can we truly fulfill the Great Commission. As we come to a close, I pray that we remember that we are to be a people on mission. And as a people on mission, we should and we must, not just we should, I use we should on there, but it's we should and we must deliver the message, be devoted to the work, and discern the audience. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to, well, frankly, I I pray that we repent of not delivering the message the way we should, not being devoted to the work way we should, not discerning our audience, those that we're going out with, those that, that we are to serve well. Uh, the, the, the sin of pride and selfishness that, that just so entangles us so easily, Lord. I, I repent for myself and I, I repent for our church or I repent for the church universally. I pray that each one of us does that. And by repenting, that means we turn from our wicked ways, to turn from our sin and we turn toward you and we follow you in obedience as John fourteen fifteen so well said. If we love you, we'll obey your commands. And you have commanded us, not suggested, you have commanded that we share the gospel, that we preach the gospel, Lord. And so help us to do that well. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Uh, Be with us as we go out today, and may we uh, bring you glory. Amen.